Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Mondays Down South. As you can see, we have a new guest for the week. Welcome aboard, Mr. Patrick Barnett. Oh man, this is going to be a good one. We've been looking, looking forward to this one for a while. Pat, I'll let you explain to these guys what your interests are, what teams you like, where, what you're representing. But I mean, as, as you'll find out very quickly, we've all been best friends for a very long time. So this should be an interesting segment. Go ahead, Patty. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, like you said, my name is Patrick. I went to University of Florida, so I'm a big Gator fan for all sports there. Uh, I grew up in Florida, so I'm an Orlando Magic fan, which means I'm constantly stuck in mediocrity. Uh, I'm also a huge LeBron fan. He is the best player of all time. It's not really debatable. Uh, Football-wise, for the NFL, I just kind of root for good quality football. I, I can't help but root for Patrick Mahomes. I, I love to see a greatness in action. Uh, but if I had to pick one, I guess I'd go with the Jaguars, which, again, is st stuck in mediocrity here. Uh, and then, you know, for baseball, my whole family's from upstate New York, so I've been a, a big Yankees fan my whole life, been brainwashed since a young age. So, yeah, it, it's been a disappointing 10 years, uh, hoping to change that around and just spend some more money. So. <laughs> that was one heck of, one heck of a start. I, I expect nothing less well from done. Mr. Barnett over here. <laughs> Guys, I, I think the, uh, the two-year, $85 million contract for Mr. LeBron James making 40-plus a year uh, re-signing with the L.A. Lakers. Now, I was hoping he would selfishly go to the Orlando Magic so I could really compliment you. But you guys did get Cole Anthony. So, you know, there's another superstar in the making, maybe. He's got a lot of upside, but uh, I'm not a big believer in him, to be honest. You I know, think, uh, he, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Patty. Go ahead, Patty. You good? I, I was just going to say, you know, He's already got a leg up on Markel Fultz because he's got one less bum shoulder. So I think we got a real good shot at turning him into another bench warmer that will go outperform somewhere else. <laughs> That's the model. That's the model. Yeah, I think uh, I think we definitely owe congratulations to LeBron James, who is now making the same amount of money as John Wall and Russell Westbrook. So congratulations on that, as I'm sure that part is very relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. I also think we're underselling our uh, our relationship with Patrick here. I mean, Zach and I being uh, being Griezmann as wedding and Ed being best friends with him for as long as it's been. Pat, we, we got to talk about more than just sports, man. Like like fill these people in on your life, man. That we we want we want these guys to know about you. You know, you're out, yeah. you're out in California now. You're one of those West Coast kids, so we gotta hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so you know, I moved out to Anaheim in or Orange County rather in February. The end of the world hit in March. Uh, so I unfortunately haven't gotten a chance to go to any Angels games. I literally live right next to the stadium, uh, and it's a beautiful stadium. It's actually pretty old. I didn't realize this. I think it's the third oldest stadium in baseball that's being currently used uh, compared to, I believe, wow. Wrigley and Fenway. I did not so, know that. Wow. Right? So fun fact for somebody that's never been, uh, but driven past it many times and shed a tear every time. Uh, but it's it's a really cool layout that they have around here. They've been able to build up the restaurants and the breweries in the area, so it's all walking distance. Uh, so I, I think the experience has uh, really been adding to try and get more people in the seats, you know, seeing as they do have the GOAT playing for them, you know, Joe Madden. Uh, so, but, you know, I, I find that their lack of pitching is just – 
so disturbing for the amount of payroll that they have. Their, their offensive firepower seems to be okay. I mean, the, the offense was okay at best this year. You know, and Russell Simmons, it seems to be on the back end of his career. Anthony Rendon did not do Anthony Rendon things. Uh, you know, and injuries, COVID, shortened season, it's it's hard not to take it all with a, a grain of salt. But it is frustrating to come out here and not get to watch the team underperform. You know, <laughs> They've, they've always been that team that just always underperforms in the talent around them. It is exciting. The Orioles just made a trade with the Angels, which boots Anderson Simmons out because I think he's a free agent. So he's definitely gone. Um, mm-hmm. Jose Iglesias is the new shortstop there. That just happened about an hour ago. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So quality pickup there. But, uh, yeah, we'll see if anything changes with the Angels. But it's hard to, hard to win if you can't get people out, like you said. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, should be an exciting season. I'm just ready to bang on some trash cans because that got taken away from us this year. So this is true. The Astros really caught a break this season. That, oh, that, yeah. that part it cannot be undersold. All right, let's jump right into hot takes because I, I mean I'm sure we'll have plenty and we got a lot to talk about as well. So uh, I'll start. I'll start off. Uh, Zebo, did you tee up? Did you tee, tee up Pat? Do you have any hot takes for us, Pat, or uh, do you want one of these guys to go first? Uh, I'll watch and learn to start. All righty, go ahead, Zach. Cool. I'll knock it off first. Uh, so we will keep it in the West Coast. I know um, Pat was talking about the LA region. So let's bring it to boxing and let's bring it to Vegas, which is where I believe the most recent Tyson card was with Jake Paul and Nate Robinson as the co-main event. And my hot take is these celebrity boxing matches, which is really started since Floyd and Connor decided the fight in a boxing ring and made more money than the legitimate boxing fight, which followed a month later and being triple G and Canelo Alvarez. And they like more than quadrupled the sales in the Connor Floyd fight. The reason why I wanted to bring that up is because these celebrity boxing matches are actually outselling to a very large degree legitimate boxing fights with world-class fighters. And the reason I bring this up is obviously Evan and I are pretty big UFC fans, but the UFC has totally taken over the fight world over boxing. Boxing was just five, 10 years ago, the arrogant older brother that was saying, what is UFC? It's human cockfighting. It'll never become popular, let alone it'll never be sanctioned in New York and other states like that. And obviously that changed, but boxing right now is dealing with a whole other issue in that their actual legitimate fighters are not garnering any major attention because instead of them fighting the best opponents, they're more worried about protecting their O losing boxing record. So they're worried about going 22, 23, 24 and O over being a 19 or 20 and 0 guy and then fighting someone of championship caliber because they're so worried about preserving their record. And so ultimately it's created this environment where the fans start to, they stop paying attention. They don't seem to care as much. They are, they go for the eye candy of Jake Paul who's fought once and he's like, he's only had one professional fight before in his life. And now people care way more about him and what he's doing than a legitimate boxer in the first place. And so I think boxing has a big problem on its hands 
And honestly, shame on boxing for not thinking of resolving this sooner rather than later. But I mean, honestly, it's, it's pretty sad. And I'm a full-fledged UFC fan at this point, and I'm done with boxing. So that's my hot take. The interesting thing I'll add um, comparing UFC to boxing is that you would think that UFC is the far more dangerous and result in a lot more injuries. And yeah, it's a lot more gruesome, but the boxing has turned out to be quite a bit more dangerous. And like several people over the last couple of years have died from fighting in the ring. Whereas that's, I don't think a single person has in the UFC. Um, you know, they have a bad injury here or there, but, and, and I think a lot of that's a credit to Dana White. Uh, he, I think he puts a lot into, you know, having a great medical team on hand and those types of things. But um but yeah, to your, to your point about how he, everyone was saying UFC was going to have a hard time getting on national airways, well, they've turned out to be the safer, despite being the more violent and the more, the more kind of gruesome. But Yeah, I think uh, two things real quick. First of all, UFC boxing-wise, I think UFC is like a big part of its promotion and marketing and like what Dana White's done with it. He's done a terrific job of constantly putting out content even as somebody like myself who doesn't watch a lot of UFC is still somewhat informed in like what kind of fights are happening and things of that nature because you see it everywhere and it, and it gets people talking about it and the other thing I will say is UFC lends itself more to a newer audience like the, the modern genera like generation of like the excitement factor I think I think the notion of just putting two people in a ring and taking away a lot of those restriction, restrictions that are there with boxing allows fights to be a heck of a lot more fun to watch and uh, you know it doesn't have that slow old school mentality from back in the day and and, and I think just in general, like the, a lot of the best fighters in boxing, like the ones that were uh, that were creating a lot of waves and promotions and stuff have either retired or just haven't been fighting recently. Like your most recent with, with Pacquiao and Mayweather were, they were massive. I mean, when they fought, like, like they were, that was a massive promotion. I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I'd imagine that was higher than any UFC fight in recent history. But when you take two of the, the goats of the time of, the, of this generation and they retired and they haven't really established that next leg up. I think they're also kind of just in a lag period. Like, I don't think this is going to be a forever thing with boxer, boxing. I think other people will come up. And the last thing I will say is I don't care if it's boxing. I don't care if it's UFC or I don't care if it's like a Cobra snake fight. Like if you take somebody with the clout of somebody like a, a Jake Paul, who who's built his infamy from YouTube and just has like all this, like this ridiculous, crazy, stupid things that he does, but like clearly it works in terms of like his following and things like that. No matter what situation you put him in, you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of promotion, especially when you pair him up with an ex NBA player, and you know one is tantalizing as Nate Robinson, who is like a super athletic guy and also is like a, you know very good at promoting in his own right. So I don't know if that has anything to do with boxing specifically and the people in that. Like I feel like if you put him in a UFC fight, they would have had a ton of clout and promotion as well. So that's kind of my thought on all that. Like I I think it's more like a timing more than like a UFC has won out and boxing will never be fun again or boxing will never have that like cloud again kind of situation in my opinion. Yeah, I, I get that. You know, I, I look at boxing and people have been saying boxing has been dead for 20 years, yeah. you know, uh, and it's just not the case because you look at the payouts, you know, at least at the top, right? Uh, the, the payouts are so much more than UFC if I'm, I believe I'm speaking correctly there, you know, yeah. and it's, and it's not even close to, in terms of the large title matches. And for somebody that doesn't particularly follow combat sports, I remember watching the Fury Wilder fight, actually. Uh, that must have been probably February this year. And yeah. it, it was interesting to watch two of the largest men I've ever seen with my own two eyes swing at each other. Uh, and, and it was it was mesmerizing to watch, you know, these gigantic human beings just go back and forth. So I, I think 
Sai has a point there where you are losing some of the larger names with the Pacquiao's and the Mayweather's. Uh, but they're, I don't think they're dying. I think they're adapting. And when you throw in these celebrity rings, you know, I, I think Mike Tyson getting back in shape and fighting is a good thing. I think him fighting to a draw is a bad thing. You know, this, this is not exciting. I'd rather watch him lose than watch him draw, you know, and say, oh, Mike Tyson's done for it. It creates the cloud. It creates the stir. And so I, I think for them to not have somebody give it their all, which it is indicative of what boxing has become, like you said, protecting the O in your, I mean, that, that's why everybody hates on Floyd Mayweather in the first place is because you can't touch him. You know, he's not trying to knock you out. He's trying to beat you. And he, did, and he does, and he did it better than anybody ever has. Where UFC, given the rules and the format and the, the style, has become an ultra-aggressive style of combat uh, sport that becomes very exciting for people to come from all backgrounds and all training styles. And you, you throw somebody in there that is more of a boxer, as Conor McGregor was, uh, and he, he can dominate. And then he goes against people that are much more jujitsu and grab base and he will struggle. And I think to be able to throw them all in there and say, who is the best fighter? That's where you're going to get a little bit more of an exciting program. We're also seeing um, a scenarios where championship level boxers are fighting on the, the undercard of some of these major events. Like I think of, and I was just Googling his name was Billy Joe Saunders. Um, he's a he's an expert championship caliber um, championship winning boxer out of England and he's undefeated he think he's like 20 something to know and he fought he was the third or maybe the second fight on Logan Paul and KSI's card and it just goes to show you and the and neither of these boxers Logan or KSI have record have recorded a fight at that point in time well, they're not boxers. We call them, bo they're not boxers. They're guys like us who have YouTube clout and walked on a thing and fought. Like, let's not call them boxers. That's disrespectful to actual boxers. Right. I mean, I mean, both of them, they, they were actually impressive because I think the, this, like the projections were just so low, like no one knew what to expect. Sure. They actually, it was very entertaining. I'm not going to lie. I, I, and I was one of the guys that was tuning in for the fight. Um, so maybe I am part of the problem, but I think overall to Patrick's point, you do see a lot of boxers that are just so worried about preserving their, their O losing record that they, they really fail to capitalize on, on opportunities that will really bring boxing as a sport to the next level. So that was just my hot take. It was something I noticed as of recently and just wanted to bring up. Yeah. Sounds good. I mean, I'll jump over here. I was going to make a uh, basketball hot take about Michael Jordan and say, is Michael Jordan as terrible of an owner as he was good as a champion was going to be my, my hot take. Like I was going to, I was going to kind of tie that in, but then I was like, do I really want to spend that much time talking about the Charlotte Hornets? Like I'm not trying to scare away the, the 30 subscribers that we have. So I'm going to jump over to something else that might be a little bit more relevant, not as much a hot take as much as, as it is uh, just something re recent events. And I brought it up earlier, Russell Westbrook, John Wall, Wizards, Rockets trade. I want to get y'all's opinion on this. The Wizards trade away. Um, John Wall and a first round pick and get Russell Westbrook back in the package. And obviously the Rockets acquire John Wall and uh, the first round pick. And it's a protected first round pick. If I, if I got everything correctly to tee it up contract wise, I spent some time looking at this. Both of these guys are essentially making the exact same amount of money 
and have the exact same player option for 2022, 2023 season. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to look at it in, in, in that realm. Like it, it honestly, they're exactly, it basically like cap space wise, it creates the exact same situation. And obviously the Rockets get a pick out of it. Who do y'all think won the trade? Did somebody win the trade? Did they both lose the trade? Like, what is your opinion on, on this matter? Pat, I'll start with you as our guest, your guest today. You know, honestly, I, I think they're both losers. I think it really depends on what you're trying to do. You know, Houston, if you're going to lose James Harden, which it appears that they are going to do, this this is the best you could do in terms of getting a first rounder and unloading a massive contract. Well, congrats, you just got one right back. So you're really just preserving, you know, mediocrity because John Wall is probably going to play at a high enough level to win you 35 games in, in an 82-game season. We're doing 72, so we'll call it 28 games. They're going to win 28 games. You're not going to be in the lottery. You know, so what, what are we building here towards? You know, are you going to acquire another piece that's going to get James Harden to stay? I don't think so. Not with that, not with that payroll, not with the cap space. So, and then you, you go to the Wizards who there's been infinite interest in Bradley Beal for what feels like three years at this point. They refuse to trade him because they refuse to lose, which puts them in this, again, constant state of mediocrity. We look at where the Hawks were for a while, and they finally hit rock bottom, and now they finally got some pieces, some smaller pieces at good prices, and they look like they could be a fun run-and-gun team if Trey Young can actually learn how to stay in front of a man for more than three seconds. You know, there could be some success down south. The Wizards continue to shoot themselves in the foot by trying to win now, and they pay for it later. The first round pick gone. So forget it. And again, it could it could be a good one because there's not a lot of talent there. You know, Bertan correct me, Bertans is gone, right? He's back. They re-signed him. Okay. So they gave him more than he's worth. Not not that he's a bad player, but to keep a player like that, you're gonna have to overpay him. So, and they did. And they did. <laughs> you know, so uh, anyone ever heard of Otto Porter at uh, Georgetown? I believe ex- that might be exactly. a better example of an overpaid player. Right. Exactly. And I think people have to realize you have to be unafraid to let these players walk. Is this player going to put you over the hump that you were just on? Is he increasing your odds of being a better team next season? The answer for Otto Porter and Davis Bertans and an, an older Russell Westbrook that's owed $40 million a year? The answer is no. Russell Westbrook will put people in seats. I will give him that. He will put on a one-man show, and they, they, could, they could do something offensively, but I don't see this as a win for either team. Zach, you want to oh. go? Yeah, I was going to say, Zach. we'll save that for last. I'll touch base on it quick. Um, I think Pat wrapped it up really, really well. I know Russ wants accountability. He's not going to find it in Washington. The way the organization has been run the last 10 years, it's like the opposite of accountability. But I am intrigued. I will say I, I am intrigued by the Russ Westbrook Bradley Beal combination. I'd like to see that for a year or two years. Um, I believe Bradley Beal's contract is up next season. Um, so, you know, we'll at least get one year out of him, um, or at least we'll, we'll get one year where we get to see both together. So I am intrigued about that. And I could actually see the two of them working pretty well together and actually getting to a seventh or eighth playoff spot in the East, which is frankly not very challenging to do. Um, but I could, I, I'm intrigued. I think that it was actually better for Washington because the Pat's point is 
Houston, if they're, if they're going to get rid of their two conglomerate superstars, you want to start over and completely rebuild and rebrand that team. And it's hard to do that when you're paying just as much for a guy that needs the ball in his hands just as often as Harden or Westbrook needed it. And so essentially what Houston is saying is John Wall is going to run this offense and the ball is going to be in his hands 75% of the time. And I think that's a big danger that uh, a lot of Houston fans should not be happy about. So that's mine, but I'll kick it over to E uh, to see what you think. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Pat summed it up pretty good. Like I do think Westbrook and Beal is better than Wall and Beal and perhaps for no other reason than the fact that we've seen Wall and Beal for several years, they've, don't really get along and it clearly hasn't worked to the extent that you want. So just changing it up um, if nothing else is a good thing. So I do think Westbrook and Beal will be better than Wall and Beal. And I think Westbrook at this point in his career with Wall coming off an injury is better than Wall. But again, these are, this is a small improvement. Um, and you gave up a first round pick, which to one of your points, um, I think Pat was like, it is protected and it's 2023 but 2023 is also when a lot of these contracts are going to run up and you might be worse than ever. So that's probably going to be a pretty darn good pick. Um, and again, a joke I made earlier with some of my wizards friends, it was like the wizards have never met a first round pick. They didn't want to trade. Um, you think back to marching Gortat, who was supposed to be a, a huge piece to go with wall and Beal earlier. That was a huge one. And then you guys mentioned Otto Porter. I think those are the two, two moves that really set back the franchise. Um, and I mean, I think they could be like a five seed. Like, I, I mean, Wall, Beal, or uh, Westbrook, Beal, Bertons, you have two good young players, like Thomas Bryant. Like, it's not a bad team, but again, it's not one Thomas that can Thomas Bryant win. Could, could weld well. Yeah, Bryant's nice. Um, but it's not, it's not a team that can win, win the finals or even compete to win the finals. So, and you just gave up a first-round pick for nothing. And the, the thing I'll add on Beal is his contract is up, but he is heavily incentivized to stay because of how all the, like, I don't even know what the terms are, but if you stay with your current team, like he can like super, super, super max and be like one of the highest paid players in the NBA if he does re-up. Um, so he's heavily incentivized financially to stay um, if they can get something together. Wait, when, um, when is his contract up? I don't Yeah, if it is next year, is but, he, next year, but yeah. again, it's like if he re-ups, he gets these like all those, you know, you stayed in your city and said, I don't know what they're called. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a small improvement for the Wizards, but at a huge cost of a, of a first round pick. Yeah. I will say one thing. John Wall, fun fact for you. John Wall actually spends more time on the NBA floor walking than any other player. For somebody who's deemed one of the fastest people in the league, spends more time walking and with his hands on his knees than any other player in the league. So what are you paying for? You're paying for somebody that is min-maxing their energy, who's not LeBron, you know, so he's, he's not putting in the effort. He's not running the offense. He's walking the offense. And it, that's not going to work with what D'Antoni's system was originally. So I don't know what the, the puzzle piece the is here. Change. You know, what, what do they want to do with two of the biggest ball hogs? You know, regardless, and, and you know, you can't look at a system say not a ball hog because they have to have the ball in their hands to be effective. And if you're not going to – get them to actually work together, which it doesn't seem we've been able to figure it out, what to do with James Harden at this point, then I don't know that John Wall solves that problem at all. So I'm, I'm going to jump in real quick. So first and foremost, this trade had me like laughing. Like I was like, out, like bursting out laughing. And the way I thought of it was, I was like, 
Russell Westbrook came out and said, hey, I don't want to be in Houston anymore. Accountability, whatever the heck else you want to talk about. He just doesn't want to be Houston more. John Wall says, I don't want to be in, on the Wizards anymore. Both these teams get together and they're like, hey, we got two guys, both of which are never going to win a championship, both of whom have an incredibly terrible inability to shoot consistently, both of whom think they're better than they are. Do you want to just trade them together? Like, they don't want to be here, so let's just, like, swap teams or whatever. Like, that's literally how this trade feels like it worked itself out. They were just kind of like, all right, I guess, like, they make the same amount of money, and, like, I'll give you a first-round pick because John Wall hasn't played in, like, two years, so who knows if he's going to do anything, so let's just trade him. I never, ever, ever thought I would say this. I never in my life thought I would say this with when Russell Westbrook was involved in the trade, but I actually think the Wizards won this trade, and I'll tell you why. John Wall, we're saying, oh, maybe you marginally improved by adding Russell Westbrook. You want to know one thing Russell Westbrook has done? He's played every damn year, even if he's missed a couple of games for his, in, what, his entire career. And he's always gone out, whether it's the regular season or the playoffs, whether he's been good or bad, he's always max effort. Like, that, that is what you get out of Russell Westbrook. He's not the kind of guy that's going to take plays off. Like, you guys know how much I'm not a fan of Russell Westbrook in terms of, like, his ability to be clutch or win championship, whatever. All of you guys know that. But I will say... I think he's a considerably better player than John Wall with Wall coming off injuries. You don't know what you're getting out of him. I think the Wizards will actually get, like, a guy who's going to be a great regular season player. They'll get a guy that's going to – like, Russell Westbrook's ceiling in the regular season was way higher than John Wall's ceiling in the regular season. Like, we're talking about John Wall at, like, a 20-10 and 10 season, and everybody was like, yo, Wall's incredible. Well, Russell Westbrook averaged a triple-double with 30 points, and he's going to be in a prime position to just, like – go stat stuff that he, you know, that he loves to do for his own stats. And I actually think him and Bradley Beal together is a great pairing. If they're, if the Wizards are able to keep Bill, I agree with Evan. I think they'll actually be able to be like a mid to lower seed Eastern team and saying a mid to lower seed Eastern team this year is actually kind of a compliment because the East has gotten a lot better overall. If you think about what they've gotten back. So I shouldn't the Wizards won the straight. What I don't understand is what the heck Houston is doing. All right. That pick, Okay, sure, maybe you bank on the Wizards being bad enough in that season to get, you know, hopefully a top 10 pick, but it's protected. So even that is a little bit confusing. And then add in the fact that you get John Wall, who is making $80 million over the next two seasons and has a player option. And let's be honest, what are the odds he's not going to take that player option? Like, do we honestly think in the next two seasons John Wall is going to do well enough for him to get a contract? Maybe he pulls a Gordon Hayward and gets an absurd contract after the fact. Whatever. The part that I don't understand is, there is no guarantee that the Rockets trade James Harden. Like, we're talking about James Harden as if it's a done deal, he's gone. Like, did he request a trade? Sure. Is it going to happen? There's no guarantee. He's got two years left on his contract. The Rockets aren't just going to give him away for chump change, right? So you bring Wall in, who you don't know what you're going to get out of him. You pair him up with James Harden. I'm sure Harden is not even in the slightest bit excited about the notion of having Westbrook traded away and adding John Wall. Like, how does that help Harden at all, right? Like, that just made things so much worse for him. Like, this is the worst addition the Rockets have made next to next to James Harden in terms of a superstar that you could imagine because it's been th four years since John Wall has been a above-average, you know, solid top-five kind of point guardish player. Russell Westbrook's been doing this for 10 years, okay? And the other thing I don't understand is you have a new coaching staff, and this the coaching staff that they brought in, and the main reason you make them the coaching – you made them the starting head coach or whatever it is – is because of their ability to develop young point guards. Like, that, that is why they hired him. The, the coach that they brought over, I'm blanking on his name right now, his whole repertoire and like has been – he's been on different teams and he's developed young point guards and has developed systems around them and those teams have done well offensively and the team has improved. You have John Wall and James Harden right now, bro. Like, I can't think of one 
like asset that they have for the future at the moment. And, you know, maybe they got that pick, but that's not really going to do a whole lot for them. So I actually think the Wizards won this trade. I'm sorry for my tangent, but that just had me cracking up because it's like two of the players that I believe in the least in the, in the NBA in terms of like their ability to produce that I, I just got frustrated. Daniel House. <laughs> Harden wanted Dwight Howard gone after two seasons. He didn't. He couldn't play with Russ Westbrook. Obviously, there was battles on the court. Now Russ is gone. James Harden could even play with Chris Paul. Chris Paul is one of the most unselfish point guards in the league. And if Harden's sending Chris Paul out of town, just imagine his interactions with John Wall after half of a season. Forty-five games tops. It doesn't make any sense. Harden's going to be complaining to the front office, front office if he stays, because if he wants Chris Paul gone after two seasons. And Chris Paul considers a, a way more efficient, less selfish point guard than John Wall. I mean, just imagine the comedy show that's going to happen in Houston this year. I mean, I'm incentivized to just tune in the games, get a bowl of cop, uh, popcorn, and just laugh my ass off the entire time. I mean, it's going to be a joke. When, when he is healthy, though, to be fair, John Wall is a terrific passer. Like, he is arguably one of the best passing point guards in the league, especially because with, with his use of athleticism and his ability to get to the rim, he can, he can dish the ball out and get people open. Like that's the one thing he always did at, at a top tier level when he played like his athleticism and his passing, even though he couldn't shoot, he was also a great defender. Again, he's coming off ma massive injuries. So like, is he going to be anywhere near the player that he was back then in terms of explosiveness and stuff? Apparently KD saw him and thought he looked great. I don't know. Like there's, there's been reports, but everyone's going to say whatever they say. It's going to be different when you get on the floor and actually see what they do. So I don't know. We'll see. He's been balling against guys at Lifetime that are like us, and he keeps posting it on his Instagram. That's <laughs> awesome play. Took someone at Lifetime Fitness and then posted on his Instagram. And it's like some kid that's just out of high school that like is on like a rec basketball team or something like that. So picking on him. Ev, what's your hot? What's your hot so, segment? So mine, I'll, I'll keep it quick so we can save some time. Mine's back to the NFL. Um, a new, I think there's a new. Um, coach that has emerged as a prime fire candidate, and that's Anthony Lynn. Um, I watched some of that Chargers game, and this is part because Anthony Lynn was a mess in that game, just horrible time management down the stretch. I guess they have a play caller that's not Anthony Lynn, so I can't really blame that on him. But, like, we've talked about it a lot on this pod about, about how explosive that offense is, and they never win games. Um, and I think at a point you have to start blaming Anthony Lynn. Anthony Lynn. And the bigger reason he's a fire candidate is because, man, is that going to be a good coaching job? You get a great coach in there. You already have a franchise quarterback. Um, a franchise quarterback that's – I mean, Mahomes is on another level, but, I mean, this is an elite asset you have here in Herbert. Yeah. Um, so you get a coach in there, pair him with Herbert. That's going to be a real dream of a coaching job. Um, and Anthony Lynn just hasn't been getting done, and I think it's time for him to go. So that's my quick hot take on the uh, – chargers there well how long has lynn been there do you know not long i mean a few years but yeah three years or so yeah, yeah i'm not years. i'm not really gonna i'm not really gonna shove them out the door just yet because admittedly their offense has been very very good they haven't been able to close out games but also there wasn't an expectation for them to like win and be a super competitive team this year anyway especially with like the injuries and stuff they've had i mean you you add you you're starting tyra taylor with the hopes of being like a middling team and herbert developing tyrod gets hurt they put herbert in and admittedly, every single game they have made, like, super close. And, like, really what you need to happen. Like, think about it. Like, and, of course, I'm not a Cliff Kingsbury fan, so I'm not saying this is a reason, like, they should keep Anthony Lynn. But Cliff Kingsbury won, what, like, three or four games last season? And the Cardinals are now a 
a competitive playoff team. Like you got to give Lynn one more yeah. year to, to work with Herbert and the pieces that he has around him. And all, all that needs to happen is they need to start scoring one more time in a game or stopping one more time. And we're looking at a team that could be a 10 or 11 win team. There are a lot of coaches have been in this position before. I, I say he gets one more year. I, I wouldn't can him just yet. There's a lot of other guys. I mean, Adam Gay still is, is coaching in the NFL. Let's not forget that. Like, if we're going to go jump over to Anthony Lynn first, I don't know. Like, I, I think there's a lot of other guys that have stronger cases to be, to be gone. I, th I think that's a fair point. Oh, go ahead, Zach. Oh, I was going to actually bring this to the college football playoff um, committee here because and there's a lot to talk about before we get into the NFL because, as you guys know, they came out with their, their first initial projections at the, at the playoffs and Ohio State was included in at the four seed. And keep in mind, this team has only played four college football games and only one ranked team against Indiana, which I've never remembered Indiana ranked in recent memory. So is that even a quality win? We'll give them that for the time being. But one thing I wanted to bring up, especially with Patrick and, and being a Florida Gator, I really wanted to bring this up on this podcast. I think that a one-loss Florida team or a one-loss Texas A&M team has to make it into the playoffs over a 6-0 and Ohio State team, right? Am I missing something here? Because Texas A&M and Florida are behind them at 5-6. and six. Well, I think the conference champion, let, let's, you know, just say best-case scenario for the Florida Gators. They win out. They beat Alabama in the conference championship. They're 10-1, and one, and Alabama is 10-1. and one. Both of those teams are in. Yeah. Notre Dame would play in a conference champion, correct? Correct. Against, are they on the Clemson side? Correct. It's, it's, it's only one this year. Okay. There's no, there's no so it would just be the top two teams. Yeah. So, so they would get a rematch against Clemson. Yep. So – if those games, let's just say Clemson beats them because Trevor Lawrence is Trevor the best Lawrence. quarterback in college football. Uh, Trevor Lawrence comes back. They beat him. You got all these one-loss teams that played a full slate of schedule against fairly decent teams. I, I actually think the ACC has not got awful this year. It's awful. Please continue. Not good. You know, so I, I don't know where you fit in Ohio State. Who could very well get their game canceled again this weekend? Ryan Day's not even going to coach regardless. So you don't know what you're looking at. Do I think they're a top four team in the country? Yes. Have they had a chance to prove it? No. How much do you hold that against them? I don't Exactly. Know. Exactly. There's no fair way to do it because at the end of the day, if Ohio State goes 6-0 and and all these other teams end up with either a perfect record or lose one game in their conference championship game, there's no argument to be made where you can say those teams don't deserve to be in because they've played more good teams and just played a longer season and have only lost to one team. And the one team they lost to is a either a top tier team or, or a ranked team or something of that nature. Fire State goes six and zero, and they're only, I don't know who they still have left on their schedule, but if their only win is against Indiana in terms of like the ranked opponents or whatever it is, like, I, I don't know if they're still playing because, like, Penn State isn't good this year. Even if they played them, that wouldn't be a huge deal. Terrible, Michigan Michigan's bad. Exactly. So, if you're not going to play out of conference and the best team you're going to play is, is barely a rank, like, ranked team, in our opinion, like, that makes no sense for them to have, like, that kind of leverage to get in with six wins. But on the yeah. same side, you got to feel terrible for them because it's like they had – they if you, they played a full season, they had the talent to go win yes. 
you know, all of those games or only lose one, just like some of these other teams. And the Big Ten is, a, even with these teams struggling, is still one of the more competitive conferences. Like, I would say right behind the SEC in, in college football. And they're not going to get a chance to, uh, to go prove it. So that sucks. But on the flip side of that, the part that's unfair to teams like, let's say, Bama and Florida, for example, is the schedule they're playing is, like, infinitely harder in conference. And they don't play out of conference games. So, like, their entire thing is just, like, really good, solid in-conference games that they're consistently playing. And A&M from Florida and teams like that. So, like, I, I just feel like, that, like, when you look at it either way, it's unfair. But I think it's more unfair to those teams with one losses that win their conference championships not making it than Ohio State. That's, that's the best way I could look at it. I just yeah, think absolutely. pedigree plays a factor too. It's like, um, and not just pedigree with Ohio state, but Justin Fields in his last year, like, and, and part of it is, you know, how much talent is there. Like you guys said, like, and I think it gets hard when they start losing even more games. Like it was already a shorter season to begin with. So you're getting into that territory where it's like, all right, there's, that's just, there's just not enough sample size here, but it's, it's going to be hard for them to leave out an undefeated Ohio state as we've seen in, in the past where it's been hard for them to do that and Justin Fields in his last uh, season. And then you think about a team like Notre Dame, it's going to be harder to leave them out as well, but have they've been in the playoff before. They haven't really earned a right to be, cons- like, to be, you know, confident that they'll deliver on that stage, right? In the past, I mean, you think about the national championship against Alabama several years ago where they get destroyed. And then their last, their last appearance in the college football playoff also got destroyed. So you start to think about a situation where it's like we've put them in before when it was 50-50 and they haven't delivered. Ohio State always delivers. They have the pedigree, Justin Fields. It's going to be tough. I mean, it's a well, tough situation. Okay, but, but Notre Dame hasn't lost yet. They beat Clemson admittedly without Trevor Lawrence, but they won the game. And they've also beat teams like UNC who are supposed to be really good, like, you know, ranked teams, and they're beating them. So there's no case that can be made for Notre Dame right now. If, they lo- if they're only I'm assume- lost- I'm, Yeah, that's assuming they lose one. If they go undefeated, it's a no-brainer, yeah, but – I'm assuming so, they lose to Clemson. But, but let's say, take the pedigree out of it. If I were to ask you, Notre Dame wins the rest of their games and the only loss they have is a close game to Clemson with Trevor Lawrence in the conference championship game, and that is their only loss. And Ohio State, meanwhile, only ends up playing five games and their only big win, big win is against Indiana. Who do you think deserves to make it? If you're looking at it from an unbiased, like non, um, non-pedigree comparison, like who do you think at that point deserves to be in? That's the question that I would ask you. I would say Notre Dame, but again, I think we've seen the committee in the past. They don't, they don't do the whole who deserves it. Like who, you know, they don't give out that kind of brownie points trash. They're going to pick who do I think is the four, who are, who do I think are the four best teams? And if there's a tiebreaker, it's going to go to the, you know, the team with a bigger pedigree that they know has more talent. That's just, I I would agree in that situation, a close loss to Clemson isn't probably going to knock them out. And I don't think it should, but it's going to be tough on them. True, but I don't, think, I don't even think you can play in previous years because, like, the Monte Teo Notre Dame team of, like, seven or eight years ago shouldn't be held, against, held up against Notre Dame this year. Because, and the reason even more so I say that this year is because they actually played a regular ACC schedule as opposed Correct. to their weird, like, their weird, like, let me play whoever the heck I want to play kind of year, which in those situations, I 100% agree with Ev, what Ev is saying. Like, that, then I don't even want to count. I don't even care if you go undefeated. Like, if you're not going to be able to tie yourself to a conference and be, like, a real team, you don't deserve to, to play in a championship game, in my opinion. But this year they did. So that's my only sure. point. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree with that. I think that actually kind of leads in perfectly to the, the two points I wanted to discuss today in college football was this year in particular makes it so obvious that we need an eight-team playoff because, because of revenue reasons, because of, I mean, a million and one reasons. I can tell you right now, Ohio State 
is a top four team. If they played three games this year and went three and zero, they would be a top four team in my mind. However, they wouldn't have earned it. That's not fair to them. These are situations that are so beyond anyone's control because it might be their coach's fault, it might be the player's fault, it might be the other team's fault, it might be the weather. It might be, there's so many things that go into this season that we've never encountered before that we have to have more leeway for these discussions to be made because Ohio State will probably get left off if they drop one more game, as, as they should, because they haven't played a large enough schedule. And that makes me feel for the seniors on that team that feel like they got cheated out of it. But as a longtime urban hater, I do feel bad for Ohio State this year. You know, they, I think eight teams is such an obvious way to go in terms of increasing revenue, increasing, you know, because it's been so boring to see Alabama and Clemson over and over and over again. For a, ca for a casual football fan, it's boring. For a longtime college football fan, it's boring. I think there's so much more that you can get out of this and get these great matchups that you don't normally see. There's just, there's, there's no other time to do this than right now. And obviously they're not going to change in mid season, but after the season, I think they need to take a very long, hard look in the mirror. So to clarify, you would have wanted this even before COVID though, right? Like, yes. you're, you, like COVID has made a stronger case for it. Like this Correct. season, this season, it, al it almost seems ridiculous to me that they didn't employ 18 playoffs given like all the, Weird, especially when they found out the Big Ten wasn't going to be playing for weeks and we're going to be a 16. At that point, I think they definitely should have done it because the situation was obviously going to present itself and they didn't. But to clarify, you are saying going forward, it should always be an 18 playoffs. And if that is the case, Zach and Evan, what do you guys think? I would normally not agree with it before COVID. I like the four-team playoff. I didn't necessarily think that we needed to expand that because – I, I was almost more worried about it goes from four to eight, then eight to 16. Soon it's going to be an NCAA tournament like March Madness here. Um, but after COVID, I really do see Patrick's point. And not only does it have to do with the scheduling, right? So the fact that Ohio State doesn't get that opportunity to play a full schedule. Let's talk about some of the undefeated smaller teams. Like let's bring up Liberty. I'm not saying Liberty is a phenomenal team, but they do have a phenomenal coach in Hugh Freeze. I would be interested to see that team go up against a big, a big team. It was very similar to what UCF did to Auburn just a couple of years ago. You know, yeah. it's like, I don't, you know, I think their chances are very slim beating some of these big power five conference teams like Alabama and A&M or Florida, but I would still like to see it. So like, you know, we would have this world with eight teams where we would be able to pull, you know, two ACC teams, two SEC teams, one or two big 10 teams, a big 12 team, and then one out of conference team, like, you know, or it could be like, or I think Oregon is undefeated or USC is still undefeated, but no one's talking about the PAC 12 this year. So to Patrick's point, I actually would really like to see that. And I think if they were to expand eight teams, one thing, one thing that they would have to keep in mind is they would have to pull at least one of those smaller teams that was undefeated, just because you have to give those teams opportunities as well. Yeah, I agree. I disagree on the, the I, and, and in, in a vacuum, Corona season is very different. I agree. It's even more important for this season, but generally speaking, I disagree with a lot of people's points that 
Um, you need to let more teams in because it's always so hard deciding between four and five because then eight and nine is an incredibly hard decision as well. You're always going to have that tough decision. But I do agree that I, I've gotten a little, you know, worn down with the Clemson-Alabama matchups. Now, granted, I think even when you go to eight teams, you're still going to see that in the championship just because of how dominant exactly. those teams are. But at least you get some more interesting matchups in the first round. And my favorite setup, which I realize is never going to happen, but it's similar to what you just said, and it's uh, Zach, and it's unrealistic, is that – and you might need to do some more realignment with the conferences, but just every conference champion, set up conference championships in each conference. The five conference champions go from the Power Five conference and then the best of the, the, best of the rest, if you will, like you said, Zach. And then you have a six-team playoff. Now, obviously, it's not reasonable because the SEC <laughs> generally deserves two teams. So maybe if you Get go to eight – Get out of here with that – you want a but Big that, 12 team in the, in the – you want a Big 12 team. It you wouldn't work this year. Yeah, yeah okay, that, that's what I thought. Under normal circumstances, it's, it usually wouldn't be that chaotic, and I think it's the most fair way. And, and if you wanted to go to eight, then you would have two wild card spots um, for a conference to get a second or even a third team in. So I, I think it's an interesting setup. That's my favorite one, which I – to size point, I get it. It's not – I mean, it's I mean, not – I mean, yeah. There's obviously a lot of bias from my end on this because, as you guys know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of SEC, Big Ten, and then everybody else. Like, ACC is getting a little bit better, but even then, like, that's just kind of how I see it. But every year, you, if, you, if you look at Evan's setup, you're going to have some very undeserving Pac-12 or Big 12 or some team from one of those conferences getting in that should not be in there because, like, this year is your perfect example. Even if you played a full season, that Big 12 conference is such a, like – such an awful conference relative to these other ones. Like I, I feel off. I feel bad because I'm always making like I'm always dissing them. But in reality, it, it, it's 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 ridiculous because what they're recruiting and with the hype that they get and with the rankings that they get, they need to do better than they've done for for them to have that respect. So this year would have been a perfect example of why I would never want that format to happen. But what Pat said, I'm a hundred percent on board with. But it's not just because of COVID. The moment they decided to do a college football playoffs instead of just a national championship game. I always wanted an 18 playoffs where the top two get a bye. That, that's what I think is the best case scenario because then it, it, it honors that original tradition of the top two teams playing each other in the, uh, in the, in the championship game. And maybe my, maybe my math on how I'm doing it maybe isn't perfect, but I think the I, six, it, it would be, it would be, sorry, let me rephrase that. It was going to be six teams with the top two getting a bye, but I was always okay with expanding it to eight if it meant more teams getting in is, is what I was trying to say. So like either way, I always wanted either six or eight because I felt like the main purpose of that is a lot of teams will always say, oh, or not teams and people in general will always say, oh, the SEC gets a lot of bias because like they're top heavy and they're carried by Alabama every year, but really the SEC isn't that good. Or, oh, the ACC is bad and Clemson just gets in because like they play a bad schedule. And I think if you let a few more teams in, a lot of that gets quelled a little bit because you get more of those number two or number three teams out of the SEC, the ACC, maybe another team out of the Big Ten getting in there. And you're watching those teams play each other in a, in a normal season where they wouldn't have out-of-conference slates. And I think that will start quelling a little bit people's, yeah. like, you know, you can point to those matchups more outside of random bowl games, and it means something because winning those games projects you into the, into the uh, you know, Final Four championship games, right? So – that's the way I see it. I, I, gen, I genuinely think a six to eight team. And honestly, at this point, I'm just committed to the eight team. Have the one play the eight and the two play the seven and, you know, go forward that way. I, I think that's the best way to do a person. Like, I've always been on that train, though, personally. Yeah. And, you, and you know why the eight team always stuck out to me is, and I feel like in the current state of college football, let, let's call Clemson and Alabama one and two interchangeably. 
Do you think if you had 16 teams, do you think the 16th ranked team in the country could beat no. Alabama or Clemson? I don't. I don't. So I, but I do think on a good day, the eighth best team in the country could beat them. Yes, I do. And, and I, think, I, th- and I think that adds a level of, okay, we're not watching, you know, Robert Morris get slapped in the first round every year of the NCAAs. You know, you're, you're going to watch good quality football. You're going to watch seniors and people that want to play in the draft not sit out their bowl games. So you're getting higher quality games out of these teams that were five through eight previously, whether they, and you watch this mass exodus of NFL talent because they don't want to get hurt and rightfully so. And also if you expand it past eight teams, it ruins some of the, like the true joy of college football, because in college football, the, the thing that makes college football more entertaining for fans sometimes in the NFL is one loss can derail your entire season. So every Correct. game matters that much more. But with eight teams, the only teams that are getting in are either undefeated or one-loss teams, right? Like n- nobody's being ranked eighth with, with two losses unless it's a very untraditional year where some team end, runs into some crazy weird situation. So that's the one other thing I'll say. Um, unless any, somebody else has anything else to say, we can jump in NFL. But I will say that was a pretty good, pretty good segment. Also, I will throw it out there for Evan and, and Pat. Do you guys have anything MLB related? We could be a little bit shorter with NFL this week if we want to be. Well, we're going to need to be because we have hit a, long, a lot of time. But, uh, if <laughs> yeah. you prompt yep, me yep. to talk about baseball, I will. I think the most I, interesting thing – I think thing we with, need to touch on it. Just yeah. quickly, I think, I think the non-tender – we're in the non-tender period right now um, mm-hmm. with arbitration offers is going to be really interesting. You're going to see a lot of big-name players that don't get extended offers just because of the whole COVID and, and money cuts. I mean, I mean the Orioles, uh, different situation. We're not really trying to win, but they're basically saying if you're worth over a million dollars and you aren't a potential all-star – then we're cutting you. It's crazy. Um, but you're going to see a lot of big names. Sai, you mentioned Schwarber earlier. Um, Eddie Rosario. Eddie Rosario is really wow, good. Um, so I think that's the most interesting thing I'm watching right now. Obviously, free agency starts to pick up. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's really it for me on baseball. Yeah, that's the main thing I wanted to bring up. It was wild to me to think that Kyle Schwarber got non-tendered after uh, – I mean, admittedly, he, he, was, he wasn't amazing recently. But when you think of it, like – compared to his contract and like the run that he's had with the Cubs and like their history together, it's pretty shocking to think Kyle Schwarber. And then of course, Eddie Rosario is a big point, but I just wanted to bring it up real quick. It's, it's a weird state with, with COVID and money in general, whether it's baseball or any other sport, like it's resulting in a lot of weird things happening with player contracts that we haven't seen before. And it's going to be really interesting to see how it impacts the market for free agency going forward. So again, that's the one thing I want to bring up. Pat, you got anything? You know, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head. Teams that don't have an infinite amount of money, are going to start seeing these budget cuts. And I think, if anything, it's going to lead to a bigger disparity in the big market and small market teams for at, least, for at least the next couple of years because you're going to see the teams that, you know, all right, I'll pay a little bit extra for the guy who, you know, was a borderline all-star or was an all-star or is very capable of being an all-star, whereas the teams that are on the fringe of, you know, making that run, they can't afford to gamble on those players. And they, they, they can't. So I, I think you're going to see the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Cubs, you know, and maybe not the Cubs, you know, and even the Mets, you know, so are going to be in a position, you know, I mean, you got a big hole at second base now in uh, Shea Stadium with uh, Robinson Cano out for the rest of the year. So give, give, give us your boy, man. Give us, I don't actually want him, but uh, I'm hearing a lot of DJ LeMahieu. You are the Mets going to poach him from the Yankees? Because now we're in a position where my owner has more money than yours. <laughs> D- DJ LeMahieu. DJ LeMahieu, to me, as a biased Yankees fan, was the MVP last year. 
He was the MVP right. last year. He was one of the best so. players last year, uh, the year before that. And the fact that the Yankees would even remotely consider him walking unless he decides to walk away would be an absolute disastrous po uh, position to hold that Brian Cashman should just turn away and never look back. It's, it's, not, it's not that he would walk away. It's the only way he leaves is if he gets paid more money. And a lot of people are saying the only team that he would be able to go to, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a Mets fan, yeah. is because he, he yeah. made a strong point of wanting to stay in New York. And we now are in a position where we can pay him as much, if not more money than y'all would, which yeah. is, which is where like the most exciting Damn. came for our fans anyway. It's like, but I don't want to, because yeah. I want Jeff, yeah. Jeff McNeil at second. And I want to, I want to address well, that's the thing. You yeah. have, a, you have a piece, you know, yeah. I, and for me, we have pieces all over the place, but that is the focal point of our life that, ha that has stayed healthy, that can get on base, that doesn't strike out 200 times a year. Yeah. You need him. You need pay him. him. You need pay him. him. He is worth every penny. The issue with the Yankees, though, and it's an interesting spot I was going to ask you, is they're kind of in a spot where they need to start considering moving Glaber off shortstop because he's been so atrocious and defensively. Burned. And your option there is to move him to second. So it's like if you bring back LeMayhew, your only option is to keep Glaber at shortstop because um, obviously Boyd's not going anywhere. So I think that's the predicament they're in, but I'd imagine they keep him, yeah. I think they need to get really savvy because I think you move LeMahieu to first, you move Glaber to second, you figure yep. out uh, Voight goes to DH, you put Judge in right, you put uh, Gardner needs to leave. I've never been a Gardner fan. I think yeah, exactly. he is – they look at him as like the staple of the 2009 championship team, the heart and soul. Okay, he hustles. Okay, he's a plus defender. This dude's one arm swing gives me a stroke every time I watch it. I know he's your guy from South Carolina, but it is really hard to watch my leadoff guy bat a buck 80, okay? It's <laughs> disgraceful. And this guy gets paid over $10 million a year, and they keep doing it. He's going to be back on the Yankees. And I, can't I know! <laughs> I know! Brett Gardner is to the Yankees what what uh, Taysom Hill is to Sean Payton. Like he says, they, they commit to. They commit to. Well, why are you here? Like, 